How does a shy lad from a small town, Berwick-upon-Tweed, end up becoming one of the most successful footballers of his generation? In the first Downtown's End podcast of the new series, I'm in conversation with Trevor Stephen. Through the 80s and 90s, Trevor played for Burnley, Everton, Glasgow Rangers and Marseille. He also represented England, winning 36 full caps and competing in the 1986 and 1990 World Cup finals. In his club career, he won two English League championships, an FA Cup and a European Cup Winners' Cup, seven Scottish Premier League titles, three Scottish League Cups and the French League One Championship. He is now a mental health ambassador for Causeway Technologies. In this fascinating discussion, I talk to Trevor about Berwick Rangers, Burnley and cleaning Martin Dobson's boots, scoring the winner at Stretford End at the age of 16, Everton Football Club, Howard Kendall and Resilience, turning down Sir Alex Ferguson and Manchester United, Glasgow Rangers are moving abroad and, of course, his role in the field of mental health. This episode of the Downtown Dead podcast is sponsored by More Media, a leading PR marketing and communications agency who are celebrating their 10th anniversary in business this very week. You'll hear more about More Media during the course of this episode. When I sat down with Trevor to record this podcast, he asked how we'd keep the conversation going for an hour. Almost two hours later, we were still chatting away. This is the edited version of me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of DIB, in conversation with the legend that is Trevor Stephen. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, welcome to the relaunch of the Downtown Den podcast. We've had a, a six or so month break uh, whilst we've been busy doing live events, but we're delighted that we've had the opportunity of uh, getting a group of what we believe to be in- inspirational figures together for the next series of 12 episodes. And our first guest is somebody who, if you are an Evertonian from a particular generation, such as me, doesn't really need any introduction. Uh, This man played for Burnley Football Club, Everton Football Club, Glasgow Rangers and Marseille. He also won many England's international caps and played in two World Cup finals. Delighted to welcome to the den, Trevor Stephen. Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, And that was quite a mouthful, wasn't it? (laughs) Just, um, you know, when you mentioned those club names, you know, I'm having flashbacks. Left, right, and centre. <laughs> um, it was such a long time ago, though. So uh, let's crack on with the podcast. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about your football career, and then we will bring it right up to date in terms of a really exciting initiative that you're involved in in your new life, if I can describe it as that. But let me take you back um, to your younger days uh, as a footballer, uh, a lad from the northeast. Berwick upon Tweed. Berwick upon Tweed. Yeah. Um, and so uh, from that part of the world, you know, you think of the great teams in the Northeast, Newcastle United, Sunderland, Middlesbrough. How was it that you ended up in Burnley? Well, you've got one, Berwick Rangers. Of course. All right. Scottish uh, club. The only uh, English-based team who oh. played in the Scottish League. So when, you know, when I'm Northeast of England, I am really not 
accident. Got to go 60 miles past Newcastle to get to Berwick, which, you know, bizarrely is on the A1, the old A1, mm-hmm. and um, on the main rail line between London and Edinburgh. So albeit it was a very small place and an isolated felt quite important that we had those two things running through our 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 town until the bypass came, of course. So yeah, it, it was an unusual, unusual town because of its situation. Um, I wasn't quite sure whether I was English or Scottish. Uh, and I never really sort of questioned anything until I started to get to when questions were being asked about me when I started to play football. My name is Trevor McGregor Stephen, born in England in Berwick-upon-Tweed. My grandfather was born in Echo Fecken near Lockerbie uh, and, and was a policeman who eventually got drafted into Berwick. And that's how this all came about. That's why I'm there. That's why I'm from there. But as far as football is concerned, it was Berwick Rangers and selling programs as a seven-year-old. My brother was two years older than I was. And I think having an older brother, I think, is a key element to a youngster's development and whatever that may be. But football, it was for me because he was good at football. But we used to sell the programs at Berwick. You know, proud of 332 every week. It was that. I had an uncle. <laughs> I had an uncle uh, who used to come and stand on the terracing. It was mainly a little bit of terracing and a little mean stand. You can picture it. And the speedway track around uh, around the Shieldfield Park surface, which is one of the best surfaces actually in, in Scottish football, albeit in England. Um, and my uncle used to come and stand in the same spot, arrive at three minutes to three, right, with his trilby hat on and his green barber jacket and stand there with his cup of tea, right, and never move from, you know, from <laughs> just watch the game. You know, it, it was, I could see the passion people for it, you know, and uh, I never played for Berwick Rangers. I, I moved on well, ahead of or well beyond Berwick. Um, but that was my start. I went to watch Newcastle United a few times with that very same uncle who was a, a closet Newcastle fan, but it was difficult to get down the A1. It was a 90 minute drive. Mm-hmm. So I used to go and watch Newcastle a few times and became a Newcastle United supporter. So whenever anyone asked me, you know, you know initially, who, who did you support? Who would be your team? Well, it was Newcastle United. You know, un- until uh, football became an actual reality in my life at 16 when I started to, you know, join the professional football club. So that's where I come from. And that's, that's, um, it was an unusual pathway. And, um, you know, one that I'm quite proud about because there were no, uh, you know, sort of not mentors, but, you know, the, no one had walked that path before mm-hmm. from the small town of Berwick upon Tweed. Uh, and, and I was sort of the first one, the pioneer of it, uh, I suppose. Uh, so I'm quite proud of that because um, it was more of a rugby playing area. I, played, I went to a rugby school from the age of uh, 12, 13, and it was rugby more than football. So I was only playing four or five games, competitive games a year, and generally getting stuffed. <laughs> we'll go down to Newcastle, down Newcastle and play North Tyneside or something like that in, 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 our, um, in our mini buses. Uh, we used to go down, get a thrashing in the morning and then go watch Newcastle in the afternoon. Right? But we knew what was coming. You know, we'd get beat 18-1, 21-1, but I'd make sure I'd get the one. Right? That, that was it. And, uh, and it's that where you got spotted on one of those, in one of those it, games? It was on a little Sunday afternoon uh, visit down to a little trial. I don't even know what it was for, but my school teacher, and you know, there's always a mentor in yeah. life, isn't there? Yeah. It's always someone you can look back at and say, well, without, without him yeah. or without her, uh, it, it would have never 
who had never got on the wing. Yeah. So he took me, uh, just me, in his car down to this trial uh, on a summary um, Sunday afternoon. I went on, your turn now. You went on the field, you ran around, you kicked the ball, back off, 20 minutes. Uh, and then I was just waiting there and someone tapped me on the shoulder. And uh, uh, this guy said, who are you with, son? And I said, that guy over there, who happened to be my school teacher. Mm. Uh, it wasn't my math teacher, it was my school teacher. You know, he taught you everything. At that, yeah, you know, yeah. when you're that yeah. age, yeah, yeah. he would teach you everything. Yeah. 11, How old were you then? 12? 11, uh, just 12 years old, yeah. 11, 12 years old. <laughs> and um, it was, as my teacher told me, came scurrying back after the conversation, that was the Burnley scout. Uh, he would like to invite you down to Burnley mm. in your next school holidays. Oh, my word. <laughs> That's a professional football club asking me, inviting me. I don't know what that meant. Mm. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, but it kind of looks like I might be going inside a football club to try and play football. And, and rightly so, what happened happened. And then I, I went down once. By the time I was 14, um, uh, you know, I'd made progressions in football on the county level and I was getting on to England schoolboys under 15s. I signed for Burnley as a 14-year-old. I loved it. Uh, to me, it was a metropolis coming from Berwick, right? <laughs> Burnley was a metropolis, yeah. right? Yeah. They, had, they had a bingo hall. They had a snooker hall. Uh, you know, what more can you ask for? And, and, and city life, I call it. <laughs> Uh, so I, I felt at home. I felt at home there. The scout actually was a guy called Peter Kirkley, and he ran Wall's End Boys Club, which had a variety a of famous place, variety yeah. of yeah. you know your Carricks of this world yeah, guys yeah, yeah. played there, and um, being a conveyor belt of professional mm. of young footballers becoming professionals mm. and going on to to great things. Uh, Alan Shearer, mm. another one. So uh, he he was operating in that role, but also as the Burnley scout. A couple of things on this. So you go back home, and mm-hmm. how did you break the news to mum and dad that you're yeah. off to Lancashire, which is a hell of a way in those days particularly? Oh, you wouldn't believe it, right? Um, for me to get down there, it was obviously exciting to tell my mum and dad. I, I didn't tell the teacher came in with me and said, oh, this has been great. He's done so well today. He's been invited to Burnley Football Club, you know, and it was High fives, but that was before high fives actually existed. So <laughs> it was just sugar the shoulders. Well done, well done. Um, I mean, look at me used to that. We we had uh, used to the fact that we used to win stuff. I used to I said about my older brother who's very key. Uh, he played football with his older pals, and I sort of went along, and I, I, I was good at sports, um, and became competitive with those lads who were older than me. Uh, and, and he was very much part of my my development. But we had, we had a five-a-side team around the villages, around Berwick, and we, we were called DD5, which stood for uh, uh, Double Diamond 5. Do you remember there's a beer called Double, Double Diamond? Double Diamond, yeah. Right? We were called the Double Diamond 5, too wonderful for words. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So that was the name of our team, DD5. Oh, fantastic. So we went around winning all these little trophies. So you had this little cabinet of trophies by the time you're 13. Uh, and, and off I went to Burnley uh, and I, um, the first time I went down I went down with the school teacher who, who kindly took some time off his holiday and came with me because I think he was a bit excited as well yeah yeah so I went down four and a half hours across the Pennines down the one across the Pennines on uh, those you know ridiculously scary roads particularly in winter yeah. um, and, and got to Burnley and stayed in uh, um a little B&B, uh, which eventually I would have my wedding reception there. 
uh, life of me, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but it will come back to me. Um, so we stayed and uh, I was a very shy boy, mm. extremely shy boy. And I found it very difficult being amongst lads from Cardiff, Belfast, mm. Manchester, Newcastle, London, generally the cities mm. where these kind of battle-hardened kids were coming from. Mm. Um, and I wasn't, I was quite shy and, and didn't have the conversation, didn't have the jokes, didn't have the haircut, didn't have the latest clothes. Mm. Uh, I found that quite stressful. You know, you go to your, be, be relieved to get into your room at the end of something. Mm. And, you know, if you know, been down for dinner or whatever, mm. I wasn't one to hang around with the lads, really, um, which, which I'm sad about, but that's just how I was. Mm. But what I did know is that I can play football and just get me across the white line and all those, those voices go quiet mm. and we're waiting for the referee's whistle. And then that's when I come alive. And, and that's what it was like for me. And you know, even coming to Everton, that's what it was like for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, going on, jumping yeah, through the years yeah. and we'll come back to it. Yeah. But I, I was always like that. Mm. And uh, that was a sort of the way that I started to make the steps. Mm. And Burnley was, was that first step. Mm. And thinking back to that period of time in football, um, Burnley have a fabulous reputation uh-huh. for nurturing young yeah, talent. Ahead of its, ahead of its yeah, really yeah. good setup as well as we used to call them apprenticeships, didn't mm-hmm. we? Um, so what was that like? What were, were Burnley a really good club for you? You think that mm-hmm. was you know a great start to your career? Mm-hmm. I suppose I looked upon it uh, with a with a mature head. Um, I, I was never thinking, oh, Burnley have got themselves a bit of a, a bit of a player here in myself mm. because I've just played for England schoolboys, right? Seven times, played against Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes was exactly the same age as me. Wales, England at Wembley mm. at, f- at fifteen. I never considered myself as a star. Couldn't see that. I just got in there, did as well as I could, and let other people judge that. Mm. And that, that um, let's see what happens, you know, with that. But I knew that Burnley. Uh, th- there's an opportunity there that's proven. There's a pathway between that apprenticeship, which is a two-year, leave school at 16. Um, again, uh, you know, there's so many things crop up to mind. I, le- I decided to leave school at 16. And I was quite smart at school. And I was quite smart because I was that quiet individual who was very, very much, didn't want to get picked out at school by a teacher being rubbish. I would like, which drove me to be, try and be the best. Yeah. So, I, I passed the GCSEs at good levels, and but then I got to, to Burnley with that pathway in front of me. But I was also aware, as we were doing the boot cleaning and the group of 10 lads brought in each year, that's what they kind of did. Yeah. If you got two that would go on to the professional contract at 18, that's you know, it's a pretty good return. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was in that process. We'd be cleaning the boots in the morning, preparing the kit for the, for the pros. Who were, who were guys up to 34, 35-year-old. Um, Martin Dobson, as any Evertonian will know, was on the books at, at Burnley then. Mm-hmm. He'd been to Everton and back uh, from Burnley. Uh, so he was in and around the club, and I used to admire him from afar because he was statuesque. He was an England player. He was classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see it. I could smell it as a 16-year-old. And I used to do his boots as well, which was a thrill. Uh, and getting my boots the shiniest that I could was, a, was another little target for me. Mm. Wouldn't say it, just get on with it and do it. 
So you, you've gone through that process of um, being a, a, you know, a ground staff member in the afternoons as well after the football training. But I always knew in my back of my mind, I need to make, a, I mean, I need to make steps quickly. We don't have time to be average for any length of time. So I, I listened well. There was a, a coach called Arthur Bellamy, who was again an ex-Claret. He, he was uh, our uh, coach. Uh, and I quickly moved through the ranks. Um, I'd only been at the club about two months when I played my first game for the reserves. Mm. In those days, it was the old um, oh, Central League, it was called, which was you had Everton, first team and Everton reserves. Mm. And then that would go then down to the A team and the B team. So I'd gone from Everton Youth to uh, the um, the Central League team. And we first game we were playing Manchester United at Old Trafford. <laughs> and there's only maybe, I don't know, 500 people there sprinkled mm. around. But it's Old Trafford. I've only been, stadium, I've only been yeah, out, yeah. out of school three months yeah. from someone who's, you know, never really had any great self-confidence my footballing ability was doing all my talking mm. and I had to be, I had to go with it. Yeah. Right? As a personality, I wasn't ready. I, I wasn't keeping up with myself. Mm. The footballing ability was ahead of me. So <laughs> I'd been dragged into these positions that I'm really uncomfortable with. Because mm. in that reserve team, you do have 34-year-olds, 35-year-olds mm. um, who are on, on the end of their careers and, and just seeing out their contract and are probably getting back into, into a first-team position. Mm. Captain of Manchester United was Martin Buchan. Scottish international. Mm. Anyway, cut long story short, we went 2-1. I scored the winning goal at the Stratford end. Right, so by the time I'm 16, nearly 17, uh, just out of school, I scored the winning goal at the Stratford end against Man U. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was no one there to see it. <laughs> right? But again, it was, just, it was just another little stepping stone yeah, for me. Yeah, big landmark, yeah. As, as, a, as another thing to chalk up mm. and, you know, don't get... Um, Egotistical, uh, mm. egotistical about that. Don't keep humble about it. Mm. Don't mention it. Let others pat you on the back. Mm. Feel good about it. Think about it when you go to bed tonight or to sleep. Some good memory to think about. Get up tomorrow, make your bed, get motivated, go again. Mm. That was really my life. Uh, and, and Burnley was a, was a start. Then I got into the first team. That's when Martin Dobson really became a mentor for me. Mm. Uh, who was the manager then, Trevor? He was an ex-Claret uh, from the days that Burnley won, I think it was 60-61, when Burnley won the first division title. Um, Tottenham won the double, I think, the year after. Mm. So that was the kind of level that they were vying at. It was called Brian Miller. Mm. Um, big, tall, strapping, Burnley boy, uh, left centre-back. Played for England three or four times. Uh, and, and there were other people within, you know, uh, within that side. Jimmy McElroy, the great Northern Ireland international. Jimmy Adamson, who went on to manage some some great teams. Uh, Adam Blacklow, Andy Lockhead, all of that group of people. But Burnley, for me, um, was typical about you know Brian Miller. He was like cut out of granite. He was like rock, a stone. Uh, beyond that, Frank Casper, who was the ex centre forward for for Burnley, uh, and he got onto the um, onto the uh, England squad, just about never quite made it. What a wonderful footballer he was! And his lad now is a is a, a, on the I think he's director of football at Salford, uh, Chris Casper. Mm. Uh, 
and, and, and Chris was a footballer for a while, then he went into the coaching. But his dad, Frank, was, was great. And I remember, it was funny, uh, my best, ma- best mate was another footballer called David Miller, whose son of, of Brian Miller, same age, me and him. And he was a good footballer, and, and David made it through to one or two appearances, but never quite, quite made it. But he used to make me laugh, because he would, he's known Frank Casper since day dot, because uh, he'd grown up with inside the football club. Um, and uh, Dave used to take the mickey out of Frank because Frank was someone who would always be talking in the car but he would always be adjusting something on the dashboard at the same time <laughs> you know someone who can drive I know the radio was up it's down the air conditioning is off it's up it's full on do that close that <laughs> off over there back on the steering wheel oh let's put the indicators on everything was going off lights were flashing but it was it was hilarious and we used to take the mickey out of him uh, so much but I remember whilst he was doing that fiddling with the instruments on his dashboard he said, uh, "We're getting you in. We're getting you in, Trev. We're getting you in this next few weeks." Right? No one had ever said anything to me. I'm, I'm, they're thinking about putting me in, mm-hmm. and so this was towards the end of the season, and it was uh, uh, the, the game came where that Monday morning we're playing on the Tuesday night. I was training with the first team. I was named as a sub. So my parents came down, drove that four and a half hours. Days of one sub days. Yeah. One sub days, yeah. 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 One sub days. So I came on against Huddersfield Town. And again, uh, Burnley won 4-2. I came on with 10 minutes to go. My parents had driven down across the, you know, those um, cliffhanging roads uh, through Ripon, Skipton, uh, et cetera, across to Burnley. And um, so when the game finished, uh, I went into the players' lounge and my parents were there. I'm, I'm now, I've been on the pitch. I'm now, I can consider myself, I wasn't professional yet, I was still an apprentice. I'm, I'm, I'm a first team footballer. But I couldn't really, because I never kicked the ball when I was. <laughs> How long are you on for? 10 minutes. Okay. I was dashing around to try and get through in. Honestly, I couldn't get my hands on the ball. And I, I, I felt brilliant, but I felt. Ugh. You know, a bit deflated. There. And my parents said, you were great. I mean, how can you say I was great? Because I never kicked it. Didn't even ricochet off me or anything. So uh, so that was disappointing. I made, I made my um, a full debut against Bristol Rovers the following season. Uh, and this is how football's changed, right? We, we had a player called Brian Flynn. Little Flynn, ex-Legion United. Wales up Wales manager, didn't Wales, you think? Wales manager, yeah. but Wales yeah. captain as well. Yeah. Fantastic little technical footballer. Yeah. And Brian had come back to his original club, Burnley, and he was, uh, he was um, up the back of the bus as we were leaving uh, Bristol Rovers, having just suffered a 3-2 defeat. I was man of the match, right? I know so, because the, the Burnley uh, new, local newspaper had me as the man of the match the following day, right? I didn't know that when I was on the bus. But I'm going up the back of the bus, you know, and I'm down, I'm really, really down. And I get up and I look at the, the back of the bus. This is how times have changed. Um, we're coming on in dribs and drabs. Brian Flynn's at the back of, back of, the, back of the bus, lighting up a cigar, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just, he's just peeling the, the top back on a can of lager. And he's, he's just called for the bottle of wine. Right? And I'm going... <laughs> We've just lost 3-2. I'm absolutely got it devastated. It's the end of the world. He's getting his lips around a McEwen's lager, um, having a big old uh, cigar, 
uh, and puffing it out there. So he's not trying to hide it, right? <laughs> and I said, is this, what, is this how it works? Is this, is this how it works? This can't be how it works. And I was relieved when, when Brian Miller actually came up and said, Flenny, get rid of that effing thing now, <laughs> right? Three, two down, and he started to give us a rant and rave about it. So that the cigar disappeared pretty, pretty promptly. The beer, the beer didn't, but the, the cigar did. So it, it was, um, it was, everything was a learning experience. Mm. And that was another one. I played all the games through that season. Mm. And uh, I, I didn't mention at the start, when I joined Burnley at 16, they'd gone from first time from the second division, which is the mm. championship now, first time relegated into the third. So I joined Burnley when, they, when the third division. When I got into the first team, we won the league, the oh. third division. So that was my first trophy, basically, which was a championship trophy um, or a league title. And it was the third, took us up to the championship, you know, to, to relate it to, to modern, modern day. So it was great. It was a great experience. And then not too long into your career, mm-hmm. Everton Football Club had yeah. come knocking on the door and Howard Kendall, as I understand it, had been to watch you at Turf Moor on a number of occasions. Yeah. Um, I know this because I've spoken to Dobbo <laughs> in the Everton Lounge, Martin Dobson, who you've uh, referenced there. Have you been talking to Dobbo? You've probably got stories on me that I don't even Even know I can't about. repeat them on the podcast. <laughs> but Martin Dobson, of course, had been playing at Everton, <laughs> and he said that Howard phoned him. Right. And said to him, I spotted this kid, Trevor Stephen, what's he like? Mm. And he said, almost from the first time he saw you play, mm. he thought, he is a player. Mm. Um, so obviously yeah. gave you the glowing reference. Yeah. His disappointment was he thought Howard might have phoned him for a call back. Because <laughs> yeah. everyone yeah, was struggling yeah, yeah, a bit yeah, of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So you end up going to Everton mm. for... I think it was three hundred thousand pounds, which is was, not, was, not an insignificant fee. It was, was three hundred, uh, and um, I, I said to uh, uh, to Howard, I said to Howard, don't get a signing on fee, right? I was petrified, right? I've got a brilliant story about this first meeting. <laughs> so it was actually 325. So I got an ex-gratia payment, which was allowed for on the tax, uh, <laughs> a, a, you know, a thank you of service. So I got £25,000. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, so it, it was 325, which was paid to Burnley. They paid me back the 25. Right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone a winner. Um, so, so that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how would it come to watch me? Because Burnley were having this great run in the Milk Cup and, and, um, and the FA Cup, particularly the Milk Cup. When Liverpool, we played Liverpool in the yeah. semi-final, Burnley. Um, and um, so that's where, where uh, the attention grew. And Howard was the, the individual, the person um, who I constantly read about. And Dobbo never said anything to me, um, by a matter of fact. Uh, and there was, only, there was only one horse in the race. Mm. There was mention of Liverpool, but that never materialised. Um, Howard actually told me later that um, there were murmurings around internally at Liverpool. And Bob Paisley had said, come across to Howard, uh, at some stage, uh, once I'd um, joined Everton and started to make a bit of a, an impression of footprint in the club. And, and Bob said that to Howard, you're right about that one. <laughs> Howard, you're right about that one. You got one on me there. Not one on me there. That's so not that, a bad that, compliment, is it, from Mr Paisley? From, from Bob Paisley. Yeah. So, um, yeah, then the Everton, the Everton uh, adventure happened. Mm. 
Let me take you back, though, to the early days, because this is where I think your personal journey will be of interest to people in whatever walk of life. So whether you're interested in football or not, um, but you're in business, you have every one of us those days where you've got doubts or you think, oh, mm-hmm. you know, am I, am I winging this a little bit? Mm-hmm. You know, I know I've just won that award, but actually am I that good? Mm-hmm. You've gone from little old Berry mm-hmm. to a big town of Burnley yeah. into a totally alien environment. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously had a degree of resilience, determination, commitment that saw you through that. But then you go to Everton Football Club, which is a massive step up. Mm-hmm. Uh, no disrespect to Burnley. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, isn't it? So oh, but we you just, go into we that. just been relegated as well back down to the third. But just, just putting all of that aside, you know, Burnley could never be like Everton. Mm. Everton is that top echelons yes you know, well, you know when I joined the club it, it was regarded as you could like you could rotate that top four mm. or top five who were just head and shoulders above everybody else mm. and Everton were banging yeah. in that group and sometimes it could be on top other times they're always in there they, they were the vo- they had with those four other clubs they were the voice of, of English football mm. there, was no, there was no doubt I knew that I was coming to a big club but then again I didn't know what a big club looked like, right? So apart from I went and watched Newcastle United, I was a punter in the in the stand. Oh, that looks like a you know a sizable football club. Did it, at any stage did, did you feel out of your depth? Did you think Oof, this this may be a step too far, or was it quite an easy transition for you? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you know, I, I haven't gained uh, personal confidence by this stage. Right. You know. How old are you now, Trevor? I'm 58 now. No, no. Then, when you signed for <laughs> Everton, uh, I was 19. 19. 19. Yeah, 19 and a half ish. Um, three years out of out of school, and then you got Everton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's and, an incredible. You know, I, I met I met Howard. I, I need to tell you a couple of these little stories. Like, uh, I met Howard the night before I signed, and I hadn't committed to signing, but I met him at the Tickle Trout on on the M6. Yeah. Uh, and how I turned up in his jag, and I turned up in my Peugeot one hundred four. <laughs> that you could hear the the um, uh, the brake discs things right screeching as I came to, to park it up. Right, I, I had no money, I had nothing. This was my opportunity, really. Uh, and I went in, and we talked football. And uh, I was a central midfield player at Burnley. Uh, I played with Tommy Cassidy or Brian Flynn, uh, and double played at the back. Uh, Mickey Feeling, all these people. And um, Howard was telling me what he sees, and he saw me on the right-hand side of a four, right, on a four-four-two. And uh, he, he could have told me goalkeeper, and I would have said, I can't be the goodest I'm coming. We'll, we'll, we'll find out what I'm good at when we get there, kind of thing. But I just wanted to, uh, uh, we had a really good football conversation. And his intention was to put me in from the start, which he did. I, I knew mentally I, I, it was going to be tough for me. Mm. I, knew, I knew it. Um, so I, I just kept my head low. Uh, but first day of the season, he picked me against Stoke City. Mm. And, and we, were, we were pretty bad. We were poor. And I wasn't that familiar with my role on this right-hand side yet. Uh, Gary Stevens, I think, played that first game. I mean, it might not have been Gary. Could have been. Uh, and we had a relationship at that point. Mm. It was early. 
I was coming in feeling a lot of pressure because I thought the crowd needed me to make a difference because I was coming in as a sort of wonder wizard winger. Yeah. I'd never played that position, <laughs> yeah. right? They weren't, they weren't to know that. Yeah. You know, because Burnley were never on television yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and there was very little TV uh, yeah. coverage of football anyway in those days. And so I think I, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that, mm. you know, because there's, say, £300,000 at that time, big fee, and I think Adrian Heath was at the club. He come, yeah, he come, come for seven fifty. So he was a big, he, he, big sign. There's a lot of pressure had, on him. Matt Marl being yeah. sold so, to pay for me. Yeah, Literally. so there was an expectation, wasn't there? That, yeah, you know, because yeah. Stevie McMahon was yeah. local lad, mm-hmm. bit of a hero to the Evertonians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He'd gone to Villa. Yeah. Subsequently, went to Liverpool, of course. That's right. And you come in really and. We saw you as, as a replacement. Oh, there's Stevie McMahon's replacement. <laughs> Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, absolutely. I've, of course, I wasn't even a central midfield player yeah, on, yeah. under Howard. Yeah. I was actually playing in an alien role to me <laughs> yeah. in front of, you know, the main stand on, um, uh, what would you call the stand across, across the way? Bowling Road. Bowling Road. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and I'm going... And, and you know, Everton fans can be impatient. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and, um, and uh, the ball hasn't come across, and uh, Mark Higgins played. I think Ratters was was not in the team. I know Kevin Ratcliffe wasn't didn't start in the team. So Mark Higgins was making a bit of a com- comeback from his injuries, and uh, he wasn't swinging the ball out to my side so I wasn't really involved and the ball becomes a bit of a hot potato when you've not seen it for 15 mm. minutes because when you get it and you just give it back to the fullback the crowd are on you yeah. get it do something impress us mm. and that to me and I, I needed to be in the realm of the game and, and the game wasn't great for me at all um, Howard monitored me through the first few games and as a team where we, we were struggling we weren't scoring goals and you know how bad it got. The winter, the winter of discontent mm. it literally turned into yeah. uh, the, the winter of 83, mm. uh, where Howard's job was on the line. Mm. And as that pressure grew, Howard grew his beard. Things were looking not right around the club. The crowds were down. He, he put his arm around me and said, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you out. I'm just going to get us to shut shop, get a couple of results somehow. And... Um, and that's what they managed to do. And, you know, the, the key Adrian Heath moment down in Oxford yeah. uh, kept us alive in the cup mm. competition and kept a bit of a heartbeat mm. because all of us were on the, on the line. Mm. Probably me less than any other because I've just come into the club, but mm. there was a lot of people looking at their careers mm. saying, we're on a sinking ship here. Anyway, we, we got to turn it around. Uh, and Alan Irvin did great on the right-hand side. Mm. He was a winger, Alan. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, fair play to him. He did, he did well. I sat back in the reserves, trained with the first team, but played in the reserves. Um, and the resilience thing, right? The resilience thing is quite a good little, um, a little message, although I maybe never understood how I, how I did it. I was left out of the team. Howard told me on the Tuesday night, I'm all of a sudden going to play my first reserve game since I was playing for the Central League team at Burnley. Okay, so I was the first pick all the way through to that point. I was disappointed in myself. I was pressurized internally. I was mentally struggling. But again, the football saved me. We played Bolton Wanderers at Goodison. We won 2 now. I played outstanding, scored both goals. Howard knew I needed that. Yeah. 
you know, he knew me well enough to know I've got, he knows I've got that, but he needed to give me the space to go and do it and for me to send a message to myself. So that resilience was still intact. And he, he, kept, um, he kept me fully involved. And the season unfolded and it um, started to look like a, a memorable season when we get into the new year. Um, and the first one was the Milk Cup final and I didn't play in the Milk Cup final. Uh, Alan Irvin played and we were unfortunate we, we lose in the semi, semi-final I thought the Wembley performance was great save by Alan Hansen absolutely yeah yeah. yeah. picked it up placed yeah. the ball literally out. literally you know yeah. things go for you things don't yeah. um, uh, you know Liverpool were a bit excited mm. I mean, you know, look at their players individually they had proven track record of being winners uh, which is always a nice place to be and we were trying to get somewhere near that um, the, losing the milk cup but it gave a sense of belief uh, and I was feeding off that and training extremely well I trained if you ask any of the lads I was uh, probably the best trainer because I always felt to get the best out of me on a Saturday I had to prove to myself I could do it midweek you know I had to prove it to myself I didn't leave it to chance mm. I always felt whatever the op- opposition that I'm up against I assume that they're doing they've got the same mental thought process as I have mm. Be nothing to chance, have no regrets, and uh, and and go and try and play to your best of your ability. Keep resilient, keep strong. If the game's not going for you, just try and have. If you're going to have a bad game, not make it a terrible game, mm. um, and be maybe less influential, but you can still do a job. Mm. You can still keep a balance to a team. Um, so when that's, how, you, that's how it worked out. So in that sort of eighty four, mm-hmm. so the sort of eighty three, eighty four season. Yeah. Two things I wanted to to sort of pick up on there. First of all, whilst you're out of the first 11, what's your relationship with Howard like? Is he staying close? Is he talking to you regularly? Yeah. Uh, and then when did it turn around for you? Can you remember when you got back into the side? Well, it came after the Milk Cup uh, replay. It could have been a couple of games after that. But he, he kind of made up his mind that I was ready. He'd always kept me involved okay. right in the training sessions mm-hmm. he could see yeah. that I was consistently yeah. able to to work my way around mm-hmm. you know these players um, and he talked to me about you know the role uh, and Gary Stevens had embedded himself in, in into the team at that point I can't remember which game it was but he brought me back in but the, the big the big Plus for me was the semi-final at Highbury against Southampton where he picked me. And that could have gone to Alan Irwin, could have done. But he picked me. I didn't last the full 90. I think I came off after 18 minutes or something. And we, we win the game through Inchy's header. <laughs> Fabulous uh, FA Cup final in the bag. Second FA Cup, uh, second Wembley appearance for, for, the, for the squad. And... Uh, of course, what happened next was you know, the semi-final um, and moving on from there, we went into the final. So I'd, I'd got myself embedded back into the team just leading up to that FA Cup final. So it'd been an interesting first season. I'd, I'd learned a lot, but I'm still only 20. Yeah. <laughs> um, so played, gone into the FA Cup final as, a, as the sort of youngest player on the, on the, on the field. Um, I think John Barnes might be, he's playing for Watford and he might have been a bit younger, but certainly he's an Everton I was the youngest one there and it was a massive turning point for me and for the club of course 2-0 yeah. 
uh, at Wembley, going to the 84-85 season. A couple of things had happened as well in 83-84 in terms of Everton, just in terms of influences. You've talked a lot, of course, about Ali Kendall and what a great mentor he was for, for you and many other players uh, at the club at the time. Um, he signed Peter Reid and Andy Gray, would have been seen as... Yeah. Old men to you mm-hmm. at that time. Still are. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, Trev, that often goes overlooked, I think, is he brought Colin Harvey into the coaching yeah. staff. And I was going to mm-hmm. ask you whether Colin was somebody who, at that time, because obviously he then became a manager yeah. um, of Everton when Howard left, yeah. was Colin. Involved in, with you much at that yeah, stage? Yeah, well, you know, when I played a few reserve games, Colin was in there, Terry Darricott was also involved in there, but I didn't I didn't play very many reserve games. I tended to be with the first team and I'd either play on yeah, the occasional one. So I didn't remember Colin too much and I wasn't that aware um, of his, his um, attributes, really, because I wasn't in front of him that much. So when that official move came and he was very much there every day, uh, then it became very, very clear to me, this man is no nonsense, sees the game clearly, gets a message over clearly and firmly. Still still one of the lads, Pally, but in small doses. (laughs) Work comes first. Um, And there's no excuse for not working hard. Uh, And that's what Colin brought. You know, Howard is the manager... Um, obviously has those same beliefs, but he cannot. He, he has to relationship those the players. He's got to man manage the players as well. And he can't keep beating players with you know with a stick. Mm. You you need to manage that. Um, but Colin was about keeping standards up. You know, if a ball went over your foot, mm. concentrate. Mm. Come on, concentrate. And he used to call me Herbie, by the way. <laughs> he's the only he's the only man Herbie, in the where world. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, they called Terry Darricott Herbie. Uh, right, okay. and I don't know where Herbie comes from. <laughs> I think it was the car Herbie, the car. right, which, yes. was, which was bald as yeah, a kid. It was yeah. like that rounded top yeah. of the head, right? And I had, I've always had thinning hair. Right? I never have been blessed. And Colin picked up on, uh, I've not got as much hair as I should have as a nineteen-year-old. He says, "I'm going to call you Herbie," and he says to Herbie, "One Herbie, I'm going to call him Herbie. You can be Herbie too." But then he started calling me Herbie. Right, and he was the only one. Other ones were calling me Tricky, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tricky Trev. So, yeah. So, Carl was calling me Herbie, and I always found that funny when, when he was uh, addressing me if I'd done something that was uh, below standard, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and he was like a not a sergeant major as such, but a sort of standard bearer mm. for standards, yeah. and um, that worked extremely well. And they oiled off each other in the dressing room really, really well. Um, Howard always led, and then Howard would say, "Call, say something, right?" <laughs> and he'd pick up on what, mm. what you want, you know, reaffirming. So a great combination. Yeah, reaffirming something, reaffirming something, okay. and uh, so so that that was just it. It was a brilliant, it was a brilliant team, and again supported by others. Yeah. Listen, we're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about Everton's most successful season ever, uh, and then subsequently your transfer to Glasgow Rangers. Your period at Marseille and those two World Cup finals that you competed in. So sorry to interrupt your podcast, but it's our 10th birthday 
and we're ready to begin a year of celebrations. So to get us started, in just 60 seconds, we're going to do our best to get you excited about what more media could do for your business. Strategy writing. Digital marketing. Crisis management. Reputation building. Media training. Destination marketing. Brand development. Content creation. Social engagement. CEO. Positioning. Storytelling. Copywriting. Website development. Event management. Audience growth. Innovation. Brave and bold campaigns. Placemaking. Knowledge sharing. Making sure your team are loving life with a strong employer brand. Handholding. Getting you moving. Onward and upward. Putting you in front of your audience. Be that in the news at 10, the Times, the Guardian, the Financial Times, BBC Breakfast, The Economist or good old Liverpool Echo. And most importantly, we don't do jazz hands. We tell you what we're going to do, we do it, then we show you the return on your investment. Fancy a cuppa? Drop us a line at itsneverdull at janemoremedia.com and we'll fire up that kettle. So, what's the big idea? A national conference exploring innovative solutions to the challenges facing the UK and global economy in the 21st century, the inaugural DIB Business and Innovation Conference will take place on Thursday, the 2nd of March, 2023, at the award-winning Spine Building in Liverpool's Knowledge Quarter. Leading entrepreneurs, academics, opinion formers and politicians will be offering innovative solutions to the key issues that are exercising decision-makers, not just in the UK, but across the globe. Sort of things we'll be talking about, well, the economy and the cost of living crisis, technology, health, energy, net zero, infrastructure and public services. Confirmed speakers include the Shadow Minister for Health West Streeting, the mastermind of HS2, Lord Andrew Adonis, the Executive Director of Politics for the Tony Blair Institute, Ryan Wayne, and the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood, Jessica Bells. More speakers to be announced for this amazing conference to book your tickets, visit allthews.downtowninbusiness.com. We look forward to seeing you there and asking you. So, what's the big idea? Downtown in Business is the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Working with decision makers from over a thousand companies across the country in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham. Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle and London with more locations to follow. Through an extensive and exciting events programme and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow. And we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, please visit our website, that's all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved with the fastest growing business organisation in the UK? Downtown in Business will be talking about regeneration once again when we host our second annual Property Planning and Regeneration Conference in February 2023. We'll be heading to the Burlington Hotel in Birmingham, focusing on priority issues for the property industry, including the levelling up agenda, net zero, planning laws, housing development, high streets, infrastructure and partnerships. 
Among our contributors are the Chief Executives of Salford, Coventry, Newcastle and Wolverhampton City Councils, the leaders from Birmingham, Leeds and Manchester and the Chief Executive of the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority. We'll have national politicians speaking to us as well, including the godfather of regeneration, that's Lord Michael Heseltine. To book your tickets for this event, which takes place, I remind you, on the 9th of February 2023 in Birmingham, visit all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Get your tickets today for what is going to be another fantastic downtown event. Welcome back to the relaunch of the Downtown Den podcast series. Delighted to have Trevor Stephen with us uh, for this first episode of 12 in the new series. Uh, Prior to the break, we were talking about his brilliant start to career at Burnley Football Club, moving then to Everton after an initial struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, We then have the FA Cup success. And we're now in the 1984-85 season, an historic season as far as Everton are concerned, the most successful season in the club's illustrious history. And Trevor, you're an absolutely integral part of it. I think I'm right in saying that you played almost every game. You certainly played in all those key matches that people remember. Um, If you're sad like me... I include the Charity Shield victory over Liverpool in the first game of the season. Yep. Um, but then we go on, of course, win the European Cup Winners' Cup. We win the League Championship. We come very close uh, to winning an historic treble. Now, you referenced the documentary Howard's Way. All of the stories uh, have been well-worn and well-told now. Mm-hmm. So I want to focus on a couple of slightly different things, yep. if we may, in terms of our conversation today. Because if you're an Evertonian, you'll know all those stories anyway. If you're not an Evertonian, you're not going to be that interested. But you mentioned Howard Kendall spotting you as a central midfield player for Burnley and then saying to you, I want you to operate as a right-hand side of midfield player, mm. where obviously not only were you affected for Everton, mm. but you had a great career winning many caps for England. Let me take you back to a game of Filbert Street in the run-in to the title of 84-85. And Graham Sharp's injured and Andy Gray. Two key things here. First of all, because Sharp is injured, grabs the number nine shirt for the first time that season because he's been wearing the number eight. And Andy Gray hadn't scored for months in the league. He'd scored in the Cup Winners' Cup, but not in the league. So he grabs the number nine shirt for the the Leicester game. And then Trevor Stephen, I don't know whether you remember this. I do. do. Plays in what we will these days describe as the number 10 role. But in those days, it was a position that didn't exist. And the question I'm going to put to you is, how advanced in his thinking about the game do you think Kendall was? And does he get the credit for that? Because he spots you as a winger mm-hmm. or a right-hand side of midfield player when everybody else was seeing you as central midfield. Mm-hmm. And then he spots for that game at Leicester. Mm-hmm. There's a position here where we can really exploit. Uh, and that game uh, demonstrated that. Uh, Howard knew and had seen what, uh, <laughs> what, I could, what, I, what I was as a footballer. You know, and I, I, was, I was a creative footballer, uh, fundamentally. And... 
I always remember something that Glenn Hoddle said. They said, if you're a creative footballer, you should never come off a field 90 minutes of football and not create one really golden chance or score a goal. All right. So that is your baseline. I, I, I never forgot that. And I knew that, um, you know, running around is fine. Filling in spaces and holes and making it difficult for opposition is something that I would do defensively. I wasn't a Peter Reid or, or a Paul Bracewell or, or a Kevin Richardson or a Alan Harper who played midfield roles um, who could really dig uh, in, in tackles. I was never known, known for that and I was kind of incapable of doing it. So um, I, I knew my limits in that regard. But I could always make it difficult for, for people. But how I knew that I was a creative, I, I've got, I've got, I could read, I could see, I was an anticipator, a really good anticipator of stuff. Um, and so I was thrown into that support Andy role, into that little position there. And uh, Andy got off the mark. Um, uh, I, I was involved in the goal, but it, it was eventually Sheeds who gets to a byline and clips it. Andy knocks it in from, from ER. You could see on Andy's celebration how much that was. And you're right, you had the number nine. Couldn't score for, you know, honestly, for, for love or money. Um, and, and that goal you know, broke, the, broke the, the glass ceiling for him. Uh, the game, each game was so important for us. We couldn't afford to, to drop points. Liverpool were breathing down our necks and we couldn't afford slip-ups. The second goal I thought was really, really very um, typical of Everton at the time. We could create stuff out of nothing, really. Pat van der Hell gets the ball and Pat was a right-footed player. Um, uh, that played a left back had a pretty decent left foot got to say uh, and, and don't underestimate that but his right foot was what he was far more comfortable with he pulls the ball inside and I just saw this this space that I can run into and when the ball comes to me I'm already seeing Andy the yellow shirt just on my, my, my eye so right if I can get this and knock it towards goal get it past the first defender Andy has got a run in here so that's what I went up and did. And of course, it came off and um, a ball to one bounce and Andy hit it. Right foot, bottom corner. Uh, and this is a goal that's not planned. It's because we had good footballers with good vision and good anticipation. Andy is imagining me winning that ball. He's imagining, and I'm imagining his run. And the two things come together, create an opportunity. And then his calmness in front of the goal needs to do the rest. And that's what happened there. But the, the, although I was on the right-hand side, I always liked to drift in. Uh, and that's always gave Gary Stevens that opportunity to use his athleticism down the right-hand side. And his um, ability to recover position was second to none uh, and got Gary a lot of England caps as well. And we had a brilliant understanding. So he knew when I was coming in, that leaves him to go. A guy didn't come in inside very often. Uh, if he did, he tend to end up having a, a shot at goal, and he was quite successful from time to time with that. But I, I could, um, I, I could fill up, or wear a few hats. And if Sheeds wasn't um, available for any reason, then I could go and play on the left hand side, uh, and and um, Kevin Richardson could go on the right, and, and we could like swap that around. And mid game, we could swap that around as well. So we start to have little bits of variety to what we could. We could uh, we could do, and I, I could pay a part of that. Uh, and I enjoyed making goals. I, I really enjoyed scoring goals. Yeah. You know, I'm like any other youngster at school. Um, you want to score goals. And when I was at primary school, you know, score 36 goals in, in eight games or something like that. 
Uh, and I, I never passed to anyone when I was, <laughs> to be honest. I was a greedy little bugger. Um, wanted all this stardom uh, as, a, as a school kid. Uh, but then, you know, as my abilities came through, I was a midfielder and then I was a right midfielder under Howard. Um, and I enjoyed, enjoyed the, uh, the different roles that I was able to fill. Um, and, and Howard, uh, you know, when he picked anyone in the team, he had to trust them 100%. He was brilliant spotting players. And Paul Bracewell springs to mind, who came for that 84-85 uh, season. Uh, really was staying fit, which meant that he could pay to his, his maximum. Yeah. And that was key for him. Yeah. He stayed fit. Paul Bracewell comes in, supported by Richard and, uh, and Alan Harper. Uh, and Sheeds was the, the great counterbalance to me on the left-hand side. Um, and it was, in, I have to say so myself, probably one of the best balanced midfields uh, that there could be. There wasn't many goals coming from central positions. Uh, there was an odd contribution, but Sheeds and I were in competition without it being said. Right? If he scored, my nose was out of joint. <laughs> Vice versa. And in terms of that team, mm-hmm. you talk about the talent in it and, you know, full of internationals, great individual players, lots of individual awards, international cap, player of the season awards, and so on and so forth. Arguably the best goalkeeper in the world. For sure. But the thing that stands out from that team for me is the camaraderie. And, you know, there was a few years ago now, we had the Howard's Way Mm -hmm. um, movie premiere at St. George's Hall. Mm -hmm. The thing that struck me, and I'm sure everybody else who attended that night, was the fact that all the squad are there Mm-hmm. and you're all like big kids <laughs> and you're all getting on like it yeah. was 1984 and it's again. not an act right you can tell it's the authenticity is, yeah. is there but how much did Howard have to work on that or was his talents included within his talent spotting was he picking characters that will fit with the group I think there was an element to that as well but we, you know we did run into um Know, massive hurdles when there was a that, the early days when I went to the club particularly, mm. but he he kept the consistency of um, and and it's uh, a vintage well known story about Howard would take us out for Chinese meals, mm. right? And you know when we didn't even know about it, yeah. So right, lads, you're not going home. You're not going <laughs> off. Right? Um, and uh, we'll be off to. Uh, off to Southport or, or wherever for, for a Chinese, which was purely and simply about pulling us together. I'm sure other clubs did it as well. Um, but I, I was always seemed to have a massive positive effect. Uh, and, and he had the daily, the, the daily camaraderie that came from what was going on on the training field because we loved training. Um, and, and you could really sense uh, a common goal. And that wasn't just about the drills that we did. It was about uh, the competitiveness within it. It was about the head tennis that we did. Um, Howard and Colin used to be you know, fully involved in that. Uh, Howard was still a really, a really good player. Colin had slowed down because of his hip. Um, but Howard would be part of it. The communication that Howard had with, and, 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 the, and the attention to detail and then communicate that was superb. He would 
stop stop something and, and just turn turn your body around, turn it around, get out there, get yourself back onto the white lines. For me, get back on the white lines, make it as big as you possibly can, gives everybody space. It gives not only you, if that defender comes because you go wide, it's given Andy Gray, it's given Inchy, it's given Sharpie 10 yards of space. And it could be frustrating at times because you're not getting involved in the game, but it was such a key thing. Yeah. So we, we, we didn't play football by numbers, but we did have structure. And Howard made sure that that was, was understood. But if you're not enjoying your job, yeah. um, uh, you're not going to be as effective as you can be. And those guys, as I say, still to this day, you, mm-hmm. you, you all get on famously well. Mm-hmm. So as I say, listen, Trevor, you and I could reminisce and have to uh, <laughs> about all the goals, all those great moments, the, the Bayern Munich night, yeah. the disappointments of the United defeat at Wembley, of course. No good repeating that, because as no. I say, every Evertonian yeah. will have heard all those stories. But we then go into the 85-86 season. <laughs> Disappointment, of course, because Liverpool win the double. Mm-hmm. I still, without a bias bone of my body, think we were the better team that season. We yeah. were unfortunate with a couple of really bad injuries. Brace yeah. uh, and Neville. And Neville, right. Come um, on. But mm. what was the impact of Andy going, Andy Graham, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, one of the greatest strikers the country's ever seen, yeah. Gary Lineker coming in. You know, Gary comes in, scores 40 goals, but we don't win a pot. Yeah. You ask Gary, best team you ever played for. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's yeah. very clear. Yeah, yeah. By a country mile. Yeah. And he played at Barcelona, played at Spurs. Yeah. Um, obviously started at Leicester, then you know, stepped into, into the Goodison fold. Um, Gary, Gary was uh, not, not a great player with ball to feet. Um, he was an anticipator. He needed, he's got a production company now called Goal Hanger, right? <laughs> That's what he was. Yeah. He was a goal hanger. And we had to change the way that we played, which meant a little bit as far as delivery in from wide in quicker and in faster, but certainly from deeper positions, get the ball over the top and let him, let him identify the channels. Because of his pace. The channels, yeah. yeah. And our delivery from, from, from distance as well was superb. Yeah. You know, where I came from me a bit, but more sheets, but definitely Kevin Ratcliffe. Yeah. Um, and, and coming out of midfield through Paul Bracewell, yeah. particularly. That Gary was being fed chances, and his, uh, his ratio of uh, execution of these chances was, was incredible. Yeah. And so why change a formula? What, what impact it had on me and Kevin Sheedy is that we halved our goal tallies. Yeah. So where he gained... We can't say we lost, we just, the game just changed yeah. for us slightly. Um, for me personally, I enjoyed the 485 team, um, particularly uh, because of the, just the style of, of, of play that we had. We had to change it to, to um, get the most out of, out of Gary Lineker. Gary, Gary was, was quite funny because he, he was brilliant, he was very much involved in, in the group. But he had a certain way of doing things. He was he was quite. Wasn't a great trainer. Was quite singular. Like his, his training was, you know, an, uh, you know, something to behold. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he said it. And he said it. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and he said it again. He said, "I couldn't see the point of it." You know, <laughs> uh, you know, um, just put the put the ball there, and I'm on it, right? Because he had that extreme pace, and he had stamina with the pace, yeah. so he could carry it off 50, 50 meter bursts 
it wasn't just about the quick one or two metres. It was put it over there and I'm going to outpace someone over the 50 as well. And um, so, the, so it all changed for us, uh, but it was only one season. Did it change the dynamic of the group with Andy Gray? Because Andy Gray is such a big personality. Yeah. We, I know we see Gary Lineker now we, as we, we, the television yeah, personality. We had, we had, we had so. another thing, and I, I, I will not go on about this, but we had that change of environment because we were now not playing in Europe. Okay, so course, we also had yeah, that, yeah. which was, we were yeah. going into the unknown. How are we going to get on yeah. with not having that mm. excitement mm. Or, or change? We're just going to be playing on the people that we playing against the people that we know probably more often than yeah. than we should be. Yeah. So that element changed, and mm. um, it took a little while for that to have the real detrimental effect mm. uh, that it was about to have on English football, mm. uh, and, and particularly on on Everton Football mm. Club. Um, but that that season had to we had to deal with a few things. Andy was a big mess. I would have loved to loved for him to have stayed. Uh, and, and you'll see it in the Howard's Way film that Andy describes uh, the the torment that he had, mm. but he he'd tasted such great heights mm. in that previous season. I think he knew he would have become a frustration, frustrating, almost an irritant if if Gary was playing every game because he's scoring yeah. uh, and Andy's kicking his heels. Mm. Um, so it did change, you yeah. know, but yeah. And maybe the absence of European football as well, yeah. less opportunities for a bigger squad and so mm. on. The end of that season, so as I say, disappointed because Everton miss out on both the Football League and the FA Cup. Worse, of course, to our uh, nearest and dearest rivals, Liverpool. But then you go off to the World Cup. Mm. Uh, and again, um, a bit about resilience here and mm-hmm. perhaps about your England career as well because we've yeah. talked about the transition from Berwick yeah. to Burnley to Everton yeah. memories of your first England squad your, well, your full core yeah I, I, that's um, a very vivid thing in, in your mind in your head um, because it's your first your first step into that environment um, what happened was we, we played Stoke City in the afternoon at Goodison 4-0 um, we were on a roll. This is April, March of 85. Right, so we're in our pump. Right up there. We're yeah. right in the pump. I, I scored. I go home, as I always did uh, after a game. I, I always lived away from, from, um, from the club and from the town. I lived in a village called Tarleton Village. Popped up there. Um, uh, just me and the missus. And... The phone went at around quarter to seven. Um, and I picked the phone up because I thought it could be mum and dad or my brother or something like that. And uh, uh, it was Howard Kendall. Now, Howard Kendall doesn't ring you on a, on a Saturday night. He doesn't ring you at all. So he said, Trev, well done today. Really good. Really good. Keep that going, son. Keep that going. And I, yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Point? What's the point? <laughs> uh, he said, you're going to get a call from Bobby Robson in five minutes. Uh, I'll let Bobby tell you about it. But well done. Well done today. I put the phone down and I go, turn them wide and go, Bobby Robson's going to be calling this phone in five minutes. <laughs> and I'm, I am 20. Am I? I'm 20. And uh, the phone does go. I, I, I don't know what I say. And Bobby gets on the phone. Hi, Sean. Bobby Robson here. <laughs> Bobby Robson. 
uh, and they were going to be playing um, Northern Ireland uh, in Belfast on the Wednesday night World Cup qualifier. Uh, so massive game, absolutely huge game. And Bobby tells me the story. That Brian Robson's had an injury, got injured this afternoon. I want to bring you into the squad. Um, this is what you've got to do. He said, Are you happy with that? I said, oh, thank you so much. No, honestly. And of course, me, I, I, I don't deserve that. And as you said, you, don't, you can't judge yourself, can you? <laughs> who gave Bobby Robson my number? You know? <laughs> I mean, who, who's not him before he got to me on the list? <laughs> right, so, and, uh, uh, and so Bobby said, right, you're going to get picked up in the morning, going to come out. And of course, this was, this was in the time, time of, of the trouble. So it was, it was a very politically mm. um, unstable environment across in, in Northern Ireland. So I get picked up and, you know, I'm just on cloud, cloud cuckoo land, really. You know, cloud nine more, more so. So I get there, again, don't know what I packed, don't know, I'm not worthy. And I pull up, well, I, get, I, I arrive at the George Best International and this is a World Cup qualifier I'm going to. And these are, I'm going to meet people that I only actually really know from, I won't know any of them, right? Any of them. Um, and I, I don't know if they know me, uh, but I'm, I'm coming along. And anyway, I get there. And as the car pulls in, and we, I've got armed guards, by the way, with me. I've got a car in the front, car in the back, a guy with a shooter, you know, in the front seat. And, and um, we get to the hotel. Uh, Bobby Robson's standing on the front steps of the hotel with Ray Wilkins. And I get out of the car, and Bobby comes over, and, welcome, welcome, you deserve this, son, you deserve this, great to have you with us, great to have you with us. And Ray Wilkins, the nicest man that ever walked the planet as a footballer, uh, rest his soul, he was one of the loveliest individuals you'll ever meet, and ask any footballer that, and you'll get the same response. Um, he was going to be the captain, and he comes in, takes me in, and I've arrived at lunchtime on this, that Sunday, and, uh, uh, and there's all these faces. Butcher, Sanson, Viv Anderson, um, John Barnes, uh, Terry Butcher, who else? I said Ken Sampson, Peter Shilton, for goodness sakes, you know. Gary Lineker had got into the squad. Mark Hately was the number one choice yeah. uh, for England in that period. Yeah. And um, Trevor Francis, you know, I, I, a lot to take in. <laughs> you know, I was meant to be walking the dog in Tom Village <laughs> at this time. So. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I train and uh, on the Monday, uh, nervous as, as, as could be, um, the, the game, game day arrives, I've had two days training and uh, game day arrived and it was, it was a Tuesday afternoon uh, and Bobby um, knocks on my door in the afternoon after the training session and he comes in, and I'm going to start with you son. And I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're what? You're going to play. We're going to have a uh, huddle. Uh, Wilkins in the middle. You on the right. Um, Barnsley on the left. Um, Trevor Francis and uh, Mark Hately up front. Viv Anderson behind you. Terry Butcher. Uh, Terry Fennick, I think it was. And uh, Kenny Sanson. Peter Schill. So I've heard of them. <laughs> 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 so, um, uh, so I'm going, yeah, and you know, there was no mobile phones then. I had to, uh, and I, I, he said, Don't tell anyone, he said, tell your, tell your parents, but tell them just to keep it. Mm. Uh, so I did that, I did that, and obviously, the next 24 hours of purgatory, aren't they? 
Uh, you're, you're just waiting for it. So we go to Windsor Park, which is obviously vibrant. Uh, game's delayed. Um, motors were found in the hills that delayed the kickoff. It was chucking it down that night. Uh, we come away with a 1-0 win. Mark Haley scores. Worst game of football that I can remember being in. Um, and uh, no one played well. We scraped it, got the three points that we needed. Come away. I've not disgraced myself. I've not disgraced my, uh, my country. Um, uh, and oh, I, I, t- I had some takeaways from Bobby Robson, the way that he treated me. I remember being in the dressing room and in the old Windsor uh, Park. <laughs> you would come in, the bus would park, you go through the little doors, you go into an alleyway, which was basically the tunnel you could see. You turn right as the away team, the left where it was uh, the home side. And the bottom of the corridor, as we turn right, it had England on the top of the top of the door. And I'm walking towards that and I've got Butcher behind me, I've got Shilton in front of me. I'm out of my depth here. This is not this is not right. I'm not gonna tell anyone, but this can't be true. <laughs> so the door opens wide and there's these England shirts hanging up. And I'm wearing number seven. And no no names on, you know. No one had thought about putting names on shirts at this point, right? <laughs> that was too much like hard work, wasn't it? <laughs> so just the number seven and the three lines there. And I sit down and I don't really know what went on in that next hour. Uh, Terry Butcher just became more and more uh, loud and uh, cage lions, cage lions, we're cage lions, you know, going around and slapping everybody on the head, like, like waking them up. Uh, and everybody does the preparation in their own way. And of course, Mike is very insular. And it's just, don't, don't get in anyone's way. Just do what you have to do. Go to the toilet far too many times. You don't even need the toilet. Come back. Zone, 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 zone. You're pleased to get out, do that little warm-up. Come back in. Bobby Robson comes over to sit with me. We're about two minutes away from going out. And you just hear the clank of studs, people doing, doing what they're doing. Comes and sits next to me and he puts his arm around me. And he said, you deserve to be here, son. And he said that to me six times already. Right? It was reaffirmation. Yeah. And he said, I'll give you some one advice. The first thing you do, whether it's a throw in, a back pass, or absolutely out of the game, execute it, do it well, and the rest will take care of itself. And I went on that field. I did the first thing, which I passed it back to Viv Anderson, and I went on a run. I was in the game. Yeah. And I, that's what I concentrated on and focused on. And there were little pearls of wisdom that came from, from Bobby, uh, <laughs> pearls of other stupid things as well <laughs> that, that also came along with Bobby. But uh, again, ask anyone, and he would he'd be definitely in anyone's top selection uh, of being the, the best ever manager of people um, he was right alongside like how would we do it in a different way bobby was the father figure mm. you know which um uh, which he displayed to each and every one of us mm. yeah, yeah. 86 87 comes on and, and the, the point i'm going to make to you here and again I, i'd be interested to know what mm-hmm. uh howard kendall's sort of persona was when you come back from mexico because yeah. you've had the disappointment of the double you've had the disappointment of going out of the world cup albeit to a wonder girl. I know we talk about that under God, but, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it was written in the stars that Argentina were winning that World Cup and Maradona yeah. was yeah. an outstanding, well, 
one of the best. I think best. He deserved. To, he, yeah. he deserved to win, um, to win it. His performances were incredible. How does does Howard get the lad, the England lads in, or are you just all thrown into the squad? You probably train a bit late. You go back yeah. into training later and so. Mm. How does he sort of manage that situation? Because you've gone through the double disappointment. Then the World Cup disappointment. Is he talking to you in a different sort of way? Well, do you know, uh, uh, first and foremost, Howard. Um, in fact, it was uh, there was Alex Ferguson who always said that the lifespan of a team is four years maximum, and even then you've added one or two. But the, the bulk of a team can only last that long. And Howard already knew that. He, Howard knew this before Ferguson. In my, in my regard, <laughs> because he was already doing it mid-80s. And we weren't resting on the laurels. He was, again, using his eye and, and started to bring in players. And he'd served right. Gary Lineker, hadn't he, by this point? Gary Lineker had gone, right? Yeah. I mean, that was probably a, a, catalyst, a catalyst for a lot of things that happened, yeah. but there would always have been progression because separate to that, um, that midfield area, I moved inside, mm. right? Neil Adams appeared. So I would be out there sometimes, but inside uh, more regularly. Peter Reid was injured a bit. Yeah. Race was unavailable. Yeah. We really shuffled the pack, right? Yeah. And we brought in Paul Power, Kevin Langley, uh, Neil Adams, Paul Wilkinson had come in a bit earlier, of course, um, but he'd had to bide his time to, to get a more prominent role. Um, Wayne Clark. Just when you think of it, right? It, the, the, the guys who came in, not on massive reputations, mm. but, but Howard knew something mm. that I don't think anybody else was seeing. Mm. Um, and how he treated us coming back off the World Cup is he knew that we are, we are, we are the, the sort of foundations and the, and, and the pillars of, of the team going forward. And we're playing at the highest level. Um, he can depend on us in the seat. Mm. Now, how can he? How can he add ingredients around there that's going to be competitive. And um, he did that. I mean, who, who goes to Man City and buys a 33-year-old fullback? Right? Because psychological resilience turns up, gives it all, competitor, great in the dressing room. That's it. That's Paul Power. Neil Adams, got a chance, got a chance. Get him out there. Let him see if he can do how Trevor progressed. Let's see how, how he goes. And he added and contributed. Everybody did their bit. And, and the, 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 it didn't look like a championship winning for me um, group, did it? It didn't. Again, we're going into that next year without European football. So you had, you had to start thinking a bit differently about your squad. But uh, Gary Lineker going uh, was a, a major blow for us, really. Yeah. Okay, they got to know him and really were thriving in, with him in, in, in the team. Going a certain way, but we won't, we're going to be it's either us or somebody else who's going to win the Champions League title. Looking at that squad, with how it put together, that doesn't look to me that it's primed for glory. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but how wrong was I? Right? Um, you know, we managed it. And people like Adrian Heath were giving yeah, a star Angie, role again. Uh, I think Alan Harper played more games yeah. than he would have anticipated. Yeah. Paul Power plays yeah. every game, I think I might say. Pretty well. Um, and I, I remember I was going to ask you about this actually you moved sort of back into the middle but we win the league title or Everton win the league title 
Yeah. And then how it departs. And again, yeah. this is where I wanted to come back to the team and the camaraderie bit. Yeah. Um, because you've just thrown some names in there. And, you know, I don't wish to sound too unkind, but mm-hmm. you've said it yourself. It doesn't look on paper mm-hmm. like a championship winning squad. Yeah. So uh, Langley, mm-hmm. I think we got him from Wigan. Yeah. Uh, Adams, I think we got from Stoke. Yeah. Uh, Paul Wilkinson, all good players. Mm-hmm. Um, but not players that you would necessarily say, well, they're going to walk into a championship winning team. Yeah. But somehow um, you guys made that work. Mm-hmm. Howard leaves. Mm-hmm. Colin comes in. Yeah. First season, a bit disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, Liverpool, during that pre-season, signed Beardsley and Barnes. Mm-hmm. We didn't sign anyone. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder sometimes whether that was... Colin trying to feel his way into the job. Mm. But then we bring in, I think I'm right in saying, Neil MacDonald, Stuart McCall, Pat Nevin, Cotty. and Tony Cotty. Yeah. And I just wonder, you know, I, I don't think there is a level of the 84-85 team, mm. but I will place those four players alongside the 86-87 team mm. and say, actually, they're better players. Mm. Mm. Why didn't that quite gel, do you think? I am... Uh, there's a couple of reasons, and uh, it's about it's about um, camaraderie. It's a, it's about uh, the game had changed somewhat. Money's had started to change. There was a bit more money in the game, uh, driven by the likes of Gary Lineker going to Barcelona, ups the ante. There's a value on a player now. It's gone. You bought for eight hundred. There's three million. There's money starting to well around in the game. Um, when those signings were made, I was uh, three years in to a four-year contract. Uh, I was coming up from my, sorry, I was coming up from my third year. And uh, no, I was, I was just about completing my uh, three years of the four-year contract. Summer of 89 was the end of my contract. I hadn't had a new contract since 1985. <laughs> right? So I was still on on young boys' salary, really. <laughs> and you've won all those trophies. I won the trophies. Mm. Um, but, you know, I was on the sort of... Being basic, the World Cup. Yeah. I, I was on the basic level. Mm. Uh, um, you know, winning the FA Cup and, and winning the, the league title mm. and, and the European Cup Winners' Cup, you know. I was on 400 quid a week. Mm. Right? But when we won the championship, Howard doubled it. Doubled the income. Mm. Um, so it was around the grand. And... Um, but by the time McCotty and Nevin was coming in, it was four or five times that. Right. So they were getting four or five times um, what we were getting. Right. So that's not going to... And in any business, and that's, and that's not, not going to stick That's not college fault, by the way. No. That, that comes from that's a, the board, a, a sleepy yeah? board. Yeah. A sleepy mm. board. Yeah. Uh, who are probably in the unknown because everyone's still reeling about, well, what's the future of this game? Mm. We don't have European football. We don't actually know how long this is going to be. Where are we going? How are we developing a football club? And we weren't getting any answers. We just thought we'd buy some new players and see if we can win the league. Yeah. But there was a, a negative effect. You know, one or two players had left and I was still there. And I didn't get offered a contract until, you know, three months before my contract was due to end. So I'd already, it was far too, far too late. Too late. Yeah. 
um, and Sitters were starting to come along and we were still not playing in Europe. And the team uh, was showing not weren't progressing. But again, that um, togetherness wasn't, wasn't uh, as it should be in comparison to the, the championship winning side. Sadly, uh, it, it worked out like that for me because um, it was difficult leaving. And I loved Everton, loved the fans, I loved the great times. Hey, never to be repeated, best days of my life. Although I won a lot of titles after that, that going from uh, nothing major, apart from the Burnley Third Division Championship, to the kind of trophies that I'd seen on an annual basis being lifted by the greatest players in, in British footballing history. Uh, and to have, have lived that and lived it in, in Everton Blue was, was just, it's made my life. Mm. You know, simple as that. It has. And these are the, these are the, are the are not the scars, but the tattoos of, of what you've actually, uh, what, what you've um, managed to achieve. And uh, leaving Everton was very, very difficult. So it gets to that point that the decision is made and I've had to say to Colin that it's going to go, I've, I've, I've got to go. I have to take this next, next step. And I actually want to move abroad uh, because that was becoming a, a livelier uh, Serie A uh, uh, Monaco, particularly, uh, was um, Sampdoria, Sven was down there, and, and there was interest in all of those things. But in the end, the, the serious ones came from Man United and from uh, from Rangers. And uh, I was invited end of the season. Uh, it was out there, and I have to I have to say this: I was getting a bit of stick from the Evertonians uh, in the last few games where it became public that I wasn't. It looked like I was going to leave. And the FA Cup final against Liverpool. Were was, you played? I think you played centre mid that day. Centre, centre midfield. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with Stuart McCall. Um, and it was my last game for yeah. Everton. Yeah. And it was a very. Yeah. Wasn't it? it, was. uh, it After Hillsborough. Yeah. It was a very, very yeah. surreal yeah. period of time. Yeah. Game. Uh, and I think one fan ran on and shouted in my face yeah. that I was letting them, the club down or something like that. And I, I, I'm fine, you know, but. You know, I think I've given my best for this club. Um, And, you know, the the story's run its course. Uh, So, anyway, I went to, uh, I went to see Alex Ferguson at uh, Old Trafford, talked to him, and uh, spoke to him all day. uh, And I thought, a lot of things that he says are good, but everything in recent times has been far better. And I, I wouldn't need to move house and I wouldn't need to, um, you know, change my lifestyle at all or meet new people because I can, instead of coming down the A59 to Liverpool, I can come East Langston to Manchester. Yeah. You know, what, what's the big thing? And there's still new European football. Mm. Anyway, so Graham Sinesh wanted me to go and see him up in, in Scotland. And, um, you know, I, I start, where we started this podcast, Beric upon Tweed, my grandfather, Echo Fekin, my middle name's McGregor. Um, my parents would come and watch my, you know, I, I could get some more local friends to come and, you know, come and see me who never could. Um, and they have half the England team there, by the way, at Rangers and European football. Uh, and they, they paid well. <laughs> Miles better than I at Everton. <laughs> and and uh, so I decided to make that step. I went to a tribunal. Uh, the, how to to rate the the transfer fee, and that was a very un- uncomfortable time because we met in Lytham St Anne's at the league's headquarters there, 
Uh, a delegation from Everton was Jim Greenwood, Colin Harvey. I think um, that's Philip Carter was there. And uh, Graeme Suness uh, and uh, the secretaries and representatives from Rangers were there. And we had to sit in the room and they had to see, Everton had to say, oh, we value at four million. <laughs> And Rangers have to say, I'll crap, you know. And it came out, not to satisfy both parties, but I came out as the most expensive tribunal player of the time. 25 grand, not the 25 grand that came to me, by the way, 25 grand more than Neil Webb had just gone to um, Man United for from Nottingham uh, Forest. So uh, Everton got got some money and um, I started the, the Scottish adventure. And it was fairly hefty profit from the three hundred thousand pounds, and of course all the uh, salary, all the the titles that you tell them with. <laughs> Can I ask you? Would you signed a new contract with Everton if they'd have offered you sort of parity with the new no, no, they players? Did. They did offer me. Okay. But this was this was two or three months before. But the they offered season. you it in a timely fashion at the time that they came in. That yes, yeah. Well, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Because, you know, I quite fancied the players as they come in. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think we all You know, I thought something certainly, you know. um, And Cossie was a big, I think he may have been a record signing at the time. Yeah. Was it four million? I think something like that. Yeah, enough. Uh, if they offered me at that time, I think that left a sour taste. That, yeah. You know, the, the lads who... Yeah, I think would, I, uh, I, I can get that. should have all been at that level. Yeah, time. and I think, I, again, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that, that we're focusing on the football, but I hope people are picking up the lessons here because, you know, in any business, uh, particularly as you're trying to transition, you're trying to bring new people in, mm-hmm. you've always got to remember those people that have brought success, yeah. who've been loyal to you. Mm-hmm. And, okay, you might want to go out and, Find the shiny new people who are going to take your business hopefully to the next level. Yeah. Sadly, it didn't happen in that particular yeah. case. Mm-hmm. But you can't just abandon those people that have been loyal to you. And yeah. I sense from what you're saying, Trevor, and I'm sure you weren't on your own in it, because we saw a bit of an exodus at the time of mm-hmm. players from Everton. You couldn't have been on your own. No. And so the must I'm not no, asking we never, you to we break never any talk, We never talked about it. But other people will have had the same mindset, you yeah. know. Well, you know, it changed. Uh, and Tony Cotty particularly came up with a reputation because he's a London boy and mm. he was on the front pages and yeah. he had Page Street Girlfriend and there was, you know, and came in in the big car and we had yeah. pretty average cars. Uh, and it was just like, you know, celebrity had arrived kind mm. of feel. But the issue was, and you, you hit on it, if, if we'd all, you know, got rewarded at the right time, um, and if you don't see uh, as, as the club management team, which is a combination of the manager and the finance team driving the club forward, if you don't see that these guys who've rewarded you being able to continue that level, then you say, thank you very much. You know, we're going to move you on. That's a, that, that's a tough decision, right? Um, but they were never made. It was like a lingering, a festering wound that, that was never sort of talked about. Um, openly, mm. but it was a festering wound, and uh, so therefore we didn't get to the the levels we could have done. Because mm. I think you know Pat had a lot to offer, um, uh, and Tony Cordy was a goal scorer. You know he, he could he had that you know sniff the goal out, mm. uh, and if he scored one, he tended to score two or three. Mm. So uh, there was maybe an opportunity missed, but we were missing the the now the resilience in this case that togetherness. The, yeah. That would have won 
one or small points when you know you've got tight games, you're not playing so well, and you're going to win a game. We had that in the previous two championship winning teams. Interesting. So the next big challenge, uh, and a very different one again. Yeah. So Glasgow Rangers. So we all listen. We live in a a football hotbed that yeah. is Liverpool. But I've been twelve years, and it's a different type of hotbed. Yeah. This is sectarian. Um, at that time, Rangers were breaking the mould. They were signing lots of English internationals. Yeah. Graham Souness, mm-hmm. not the most, not the least controversial of characters, yeah. I should and say. And he was only 34 when he a took A very that young player, still yeah. playing, wasn't he? Was, he? He'd still been playing at Sampdoria. Yeah. So he came in as player manager. Yeah. Um, so, again, I have to say to you, what, what was it like going into that? And Glasgow, I know this because I know players who have played there. I know football agents from the city. And as I say, we think we live in a hotbed. Listen, there's two big teams in Scotland. And Glasgow is, lives and breathes. Um, so what was that like for you? Uh, it wasn't something I was as particularly conscious of uh, on both sides of, of, of what you're saying there. Um, the size of the clubs uh, I was getting that because I think there was a bit of envy as well you know the, the seasons where Graham went in in, in 1986 uh, 86, 87 I think he went up to Rangers um, it started and again because they had European football weren't included in the, the total ban mm-hmm. uh, it was only English clubs they became quite a, a popular destination um, but they had to grow as well I mean their first the first signings were like Mark Falcao from Tottenham and um, Colin, Colin Wilson. Colin, was it Wilson? From, the centre forward from Sunderland. Colin, was it Colin Weston, maybe? Something like that. Anyway, kind of second level. Um, but, but, but by the time that Graham had got his teeth moving into that job, he was starting to attract some proper players. That's Terry Butcher there. Yeah, and, and Chris, Chris Woods um, so, yeah. after the 86 World Cup. Yeah. He went up there. Yeah. And... Uh, you're talking 40,000 every game, then you develop the stadium and it became 50,000 crowds. Gary Stevens go before. Gary Stevens went, went the year before. Before you. Yeah, okay. and of course, we'd all meet up in, in England uh, and, you know, they'd been across on their European trips and we'd been down mm. to, I'd been down to play Plymouth on a, mm. in a, a Simod Cup game or something yeah. and he'd been like playing Dinamo Kiev or, or one of the other sort of uh, um, great European sides. So there was a degree of envy and um, it looked like fun up there. It looked like they were having a ball and they were starting to win and, and, and topple Celtic from their dominant position. So the secretarian side, um, I, I wasn't really aware of that either. You know, I wasn't really aware of that. I, my, the first, this is not, not commonly known, the first top that I was ever given was a sort of knitted uh, jersey in 1967. I was four. Right. And uh, uh, there's no pictures of it. Uh, and uh, it, my, my grandmother had knitted me a Celtic top. Right, right, right. Uh, don't know where it is now, but uh, that love affair didn't last very long. But yeah, because I followed English football in the main, I saw myself as an Englishman, bizarrely. So my, my focus was all, always south, Newcastle, and beyond. And uh, so going up there, I knew one or two things. The, the, the chairman was David Murray, and, and he was a, um, a West Coast Asian man, into metals, bit, massive business, owned Rangers Football Club, very, very big friends with Graham Sooners. He advised me to live in Edinburgh, and I would have chosen to anyway. 
So I chose to live in Edinburgh and drove the 45 miles every morning across, um, purely and simply to, to avoid, uh, you know, getting aggravation mm. uh, on a daily basis when you go down to... Yeah. Goldfish Bell. Yeah, the Goldfish Bell, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I could drive out of that and drive back into it, do, the, do my business, mm. then go back um, and, and go into a more uh, sort of tranquil environment, which was Edinburgh. And what was Sooners like as a manager? Um, as he was as a player, mm. tough. He, but uh, yeah, yeah, but he he definitely managed in in the Liverpool style mm. uh, by good players, and they know how to play. Mm. Um, run as hard as the opposition, you know that saying of you know, um, hard work will always beat talent if talent doesn't work hard, mm. right? So. That it was all about looking in the mirror. It was all about you're better than them. Just look around this dressing room. And God, when you looked around the mm. dressing room, you know, the first dressing room that I looked in, there was Chris Woods, England goalkeeper, Gary Stevens, England right back, Terry Butcher, Richard Goff, um, Ali McCoyst, Ian Durant, who's a wonderful footballer, but had terrible injuries. Mm. He was fantastic. Davy Cooper, a Rangers legend. Uh, and and you, you go on and on. Um, and on and on would look like Ray Wilkins, Trevor Francis. A ridiculous a group of footballers, and uh, I mean, if we turned up, we would win. And and that, to me, it, my development and growth was suffered because of that, because we weren't challenged often mm. enough. Yeah. Um, we we would work hard as harder than them, and our talent would come out. Even if we were playing really badly, yeah. we'd generally win a football match. The big games came in the old firm, yeah. and that is where that atmosphere that you're talking about really comes into its own as being dangerously aggressive mm. and um, um, reckless. Mm. Uh, and that takes over the whole West of Scotland yeah. um, and every town and there's trouble here, there and everywhere. And, and, and Graham added, of course, to that, when I, the summer that I joined, I joined, so I'm going to be the big buy, you know, a bit of pressure on me. Only one point five two five million. Morris Johnson was beaten in, in uh, the Daily Record with Billy McNeil over at Celtic, hanging the Celtic shirt and it with his girlfriend. Uh, two days later, he was being unveiled. He, he, he as a um, Rangers player. Yeah, Morris right? Johnson, and he was uh, Catholic boy, wasn't he? Yeah, Mor- yeah, Morris was. Yeah, yeah. you know, diehard Celt, um, Catholic lad. And Rangers were known for not. Obviously, mm. buying um, Catholic players. Mm. This is the tradition. I mean, the, the, they had funny traditions. Like, not, not funny. It was like we, as, as footballers, we would go into Ibrox every morning in shirt and tie, collar and tie, yeah. fully yeah, suited. Yeah. Um, and if you weren't um, uh, dressed accordingly, you'd be sent home. All right. So the, it was that was strange. Anyway, first pre-season, we were across where Graham would take us to Il Choco up near, <laughs> back to Italy, uh, uh, where he'd been training uh, there doing his pre-season for Sampdoria. And uh, so we went there, so we were just copying something in the scene. And we first day's training, no sign of Morris Johnson. Uh, second day's training, we're getting up, we're about to walk down to training. We could hear the, the a helicopter approaching, <laughs> right? <laughs> in the, up in the Tuscany hills. <laughs> Right, there's not a, not, not a lot of helicopter traffic up there. Right? There's a helicopter coming, and uh, here it comes, coming at us, coming at us. Who gets out of it? But Morris Johnson. <laughs> so, oh, the big times are right, right? But he, he comes in, and Morris was rooming with Ali McCoyst, 
Uh, I, I always remember this story. The first afternoon, we always had a sleep after a training <laughs> session, and you just literally through the door. And uh, we had blackout curtains, so we'd have lunch at one and everyone in bed at two. And you needed that sleep, right? And everybody used to nod off pretty dramatically quickly for an hour and a half, something, something like that. Anyway, I, I know I was off to sleep at two o'clock. Anyway, I, the phone rings, and these walls between our bedroom and, and Koisty and um, Morris Johnson's <laughs> uh, room next door. Anyway, I can feel this. I can hear the noise. You can hear everything. Picks up the phone as it's going on. And Morris Johnson shouts in, ring me back in the morning, you idiot. Right? It's two o'clock in the afternoon, right? I was saying, do you hear him saying, this guy's a loser? Right? So he's completely disorientated about where he is, what time it is, who he signed for. I think, you know, to be honest with you. So um, Morris came in and he took the weight off me, to be fair, mm-hmm. because everyone wanted to wanted a bit of him and some wanted more of him yeah, than, yeah. than <laughs> is legal. Yeah. Uh, it was quite dangerous. He had a bodyguard, lived mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, and uh, was under close uh, scrutiny as far as being protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came in and did brilliantly for a season, season and a half. And he was really good footballer, mm-hmm. Morris. Great technical ability. Again, a goal scorer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he took the pressure off me as being um, the one that was going to take us to win a European Cup, for instance. Uh, but a great lad and um, another another experience. It brought home to me, though, the secretarian thing. Yes, right? of course. Because I was only through the door yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. Was, oh, people burning um, season tickets. And does it never occur to you to put your hands up and say, actually, when I was four, I had a Celtic top net to come? <laughs> <laughs> Just say the Now that I'm 58, you're the first one to know about it. Do you know the first person I ever told about this story? And I thought, I'll get away with this. You'll probably, probably forget, and God rest his soul, he has passed now. I was working with Eurosport in 1998, uh, and I retired a year uh, at the World Cup. And then our little commentary team, uh, we picked a stellar group, Eurosport, the base in Paris. Doesn't sound like it'd be a great um, production, but it was brilliant. We had uh, um, uh, Andy Bremer, we had Brian Robson, and my mate, who became my mate, because we just we used to be in the same room and like we were always like going out together. Billy McNeil, oh wow, Caesar, yeah. right from uh, glory days of Celtic, Celtic League, manager yeah. as well, yeah. living the, lifting the first nineteen sixty seven European Cup. So I had to. Um, I thought one night we were in the. Uh, Saint-Germain in Paris and I thought oh, this is the time <laughs> you know, Billy will not mention this thing I said Billy I'm going to tell you something I'm going to tell you now I'll tell you straight but you tell no one <laughs> right my grandma knitted me a Celtic shirt when you lifted that trophy right uh, and he just creased himself laughing <laughs> he says I have got one on you now <laughs> I have got one on you and you know and uh, he never told anyone I, I knew he never would <laughs> How many titles do you win at Glasgow Rangers? Seven. Seven? Seven, yeah. FA, uh, Scottish Cups? Um, I never won a Scottish Cup because I was really? injured. Yeah, okay. I, I was injured on two and then um, injured quite a long time before mm. that. But one, I got really a bit annoyed at Walter Smith about um, because he asked me not to play because I had an Achilles strain, although they were nursing me through. We just won the semi-final against Aberdeen. And... Uh, I'd scored and but I was coming in for treatment the next morning and, and then it was getting sore and we got two or three games before the cup final and he said mate I've got to ask you we're, we're, we're going to win the league 
Um, but if you have your operation now, you can be ready by August, September. If you leave it another six weeks, it's going to be well into towards yeah. Christmas. Would you, would you do that now? Because we, we think we've got enough to, to get us through. Yeah. So I did it, took yeah. it. And do you know what? He'd never gave me a, a cup final um, medal. You know how people who participate mm. generally get a medal? He didn't give me the medal. So I didn't get a Scottish Cup medal. Okay. I got, I got a couple of um, uh, league, league, cups. league Cups, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you obviously already had thought about potentially moving to the continent, mentioned earlier, sort of Santoria, mm-hmm. maybe yeah. Monaco. Yeah. You end up at Marseille, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. you know, I'm conscious of the time now, but what was that sort of experience like, working abroad, oh, living yeah. abroad? Was yeah. it? Right. Um, I'll have some stories on that. I'll try and be quick. The first one was that when we were, again, and you'll, you'll chuckle, right, this training camp, uh, Walter was manager then, but he continued the, the Grimson in his sort of uh, um, processes. And uh, after training, he says, can you come up to the room, right? And I go up to the room. This is sort of mid preseason, And uh, early July, he said, we've had a bid for you. And I just signed a five-year extension at Rangers four months before. So I saw my future there because mm. English football was still not back yes. in. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, and I was very happy. God, we just won all these titles and won two on the trot at that point. So, um, what's well, been a really good five million, uh, Marseille and Marseille had just played in the European cup final mm. with the, you know, Jean-Pierre Papin and Didier, uh, not Didier Deschamps, um, uh, Chrissy Waddle. And, but they were, uh, owned by Benatapi, owner of Adidas, massive. Beaten by Red Star Belgrade, five million. Uh, he said they're coming in tonight. Um, will, will, you, will you meet them? That's my dream to go and play, right? And at that level. Uh, so the uh, the kit man Jimmy Bell, who passed sadly from Rangers very very recently, um, fifty years, forty five, fifty years service. Jimmy said, I'll take it. I said, I've not got a suit. I've only come across some tracksuits. So Jimmy takes me down to the, the menswear shop in the Italian village. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm going to try this gear on, right? Because Marcy are flying in uh, probably by helicopter that night. And so I, I get this suit, you know, this sort of suave, you know, I'm looking a million dollars. I look Italian. Uh, and I thought, fantastic. Can't wait for them to get here. Walter comes to the, uh, my room. They've called off. I'm not coming. Well, the conversation's still going, but they're not coming. Oh, uh, right. I still got oh, nice suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so we get back to, to, to Rangers. And obviously I'm not, I'm not one for going forward to what was happening with that transfer thing. You know, what's going on? And my, my agent was a guy called Dennis Roach, who was, who was well known in the game. Uh, one of the few agents of the time, but he, he, he had Glenn Hoddle, he had him at Monaco, Mark Haitley was one of his. Uh, Mark Hughes, really good, you know, top players, right? And uh, Dennis said, ah, it's, it's all, gone, all gone quiet. Anyway, I'd all gone quiet. We got back to training. And Walter told me to just bring my passport in every day <laughs> to training, right? So that kind of gives you a, piece of the set, a mindset that I don't know if I'm coming or going here. Right? <laughs> so I'm training with Rangers uh, on the rugby pitches that we used to use, right? Not, not great facilities up there, but... Uh, um, so I'd go in there, nothing. I wasn't going to ask Walter, nothing. Um, got to the day before, 
the end of the transfer window. I got home at about two o'clock after training. I said, well, that's that, isn't it? Because I can just pop that passport away uh, and get on with the next four years, five years at, at Rangers. And I'm happy to do so. I had to take it. I had to take it and without telling anyone about it that I'd, I'd taken it. So off I went to, went to Marseille, landed there. Chris Waddle met me, entourage of reporters, straight into uh, uh, a media scrum and a press conference, which I didn't understand a word of. Uh, and it was uh, very refreshing to know that Chris Waddle hadn't been there two years, didn't know anything French either. <laughs> so he was still YI man, you know, body lad. So he was still very much just Chris Waddle. That then started that whole episode. Um, uh, we won, we won the championship in the first year, but it was a. We hoped to win the European Cup, but we had a disaster against Sparta Prague, uh, leading three 0 Get two penalties away, turned it round. They beat us two one away, and we were out. And that pulled the plug from the finances of that football club mm. because they depended on Tappy's backing, yeah. but he always used that leverage, mm. right? The and get, you know, and, yeah. and and it was a magnificent. Yeah. Magnificent. I tell you what, to go from what I was used to at Rangers turning up in the suit until the, when that first morning when I saw the goalkeeper arrive on the Harley Davidson in a string vest, <laughs> right? I thought, this is a different culture, right? <laughs> you know, you got to, like, I had the sort of shell suit, mm. I was zipped up, didn't know, quite know what to wear. <laughs> uh, shorts, jeans, <laughs> flip flops, and whatever you want, you know, different culture, different mm. mindset. And that's, as you say, from Rangers and the suit of the Absolutely, chalk and that. cheese, chalk and cheese. <laughs> Trevor, it's, it's been fantastic talking about a whole range of experiences within the football industry. I'd love to have touched on the World Cup 1990. We'll do that next time you come in. But you now um, obviously do a lot of media work, yep. do some stuff for talk sports, some stuff mm. for Sky in mm. terms of football punditry. But this key role that you've got yep. at Causeway Technologies, where you're the mental health ambassador, just right. briefly describe um, what that's about. Do you know, since I stopped playing, uh, n- none of the things that I've done or attempted to do, I've done try to do them to the best of my ability. Um, I've not, I've been passionate about them um, and wanting to make a difference. And this, this project uh, gives me that opportunity. Uh, Causeway Technologies is a, uh, a company that provides uh, digital technology into the construction industry and have done extremely well over 20 years. Uh, the, the owner of that company is an Evertonian. He invited me back into a role because he'd linked up with Everton and the Community Charity Foundation as a, their partner uh, for, for, the, for the year. So he asked me, would you come and fill that gap that, between us and Everton? You seem to fit the bill very well. And he knew I was interested in, uh, in mindset, but particularly having been um, in that elite sports bracket. Yeah. Uh, I was living in Dubai, but they had an office across there, and I got to know um, uh, one of his key uh, employees there. Um, and when that was fed back, that was interesting. The mindset that set thinking going with Phil Brown at Causeway. Um, can I, could I get involved? So uh, we, we've worked on it the last 18 months, uh, and it's based around the construction industry. Causeway is not directly in it, they don't build houses, mm. they just give a service as a product, a uh, digital product, into the service, you know, from your tier ones, your, your Balfours and Keys and Lango Rocks. Um, to, to smaller companies, but a lot of them. And Phil was particularly, uh, you know, ama- not amazed, that's the wrong word. Um, uh, I can't find the word. Shocked, I would say, 
when he was listening to a podcast, not an interview by Mike Sala, who happens to be the, um, one of the directors in Everton, the community, uh, there was on radio five live, which was talking about, uh, mental health and was talking about construction, uh, and statistics, which were unknown to Phil at that time, uh, the suicide rates within that, uh, industry, um, one in four contemplate suicide, two construction workers per, <coughs> per week commit suicide. And this exceeds any other industry by three or four times. Um, so on the annual figures are, are, are really shocking. Since COVID, it's got worse and it continues to get worse in the current fina- uh, financial predicament we've all found ourselves in, energy crisis and all of these things. Phil wanted to make a difference. I want to go and help him. I said, right, how do we do it? And really what we can do is, is, is create um, amplification of the destigmatization of mental health by using football and working with Everton in the community. Um, we, we've been part of the building of the People's Place, which is uh, in the shadows of Goodison, Spellow Lane, where Everton um, EITC campuses who do, do a magnificent job across the L4 region, uh, across Merseyside. Uh, and um, we, we built this uh, a fantastic facility, as I say, which is a walk-in 24-7, 365 facility, which has the Everton badge above it. And it's, the, it's surprising the trust and loyalty that fans have for their club that almost goes beyond their family and their workplace. Now, we're, we're looking forward to seeing what impact that can make because any benefit is a great benefit. If you're saving someone's life, any life saved is a benefit. And that is really the, what's at the core of this. So I'm using um, the tools that I have and the platforms that I have just to create amplification, create a campaign, which I'm doing. With, uh, with Causeway at the moment. We would like to take it to the political arena and, and, and um, you've been helping us uh, with, with that, Frank, in, in, in your businesses. Um, to get this, like health and safety has been included in procurement over the last 30, 40 years, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Uh, mental health and well-being is not included in procurement at all. So there's no responsibility within the construction industry. It's almost uh, a suggestion. Uh, and no more than suggesting that you might want to look after your workers. So if we can create the noise, get other football clubs and football people involved in creating a campaign that says, look, look at this crisis. How can we help these people? How can, can we create onus on the construction industry and workers uh, or businesses themselves? Let's, what does a better environment look like? What, uh, what can be done to make it a little bit easier, less um, um, stressful? For, for the worker to add it to their family picture, to their environment, create an environment where they can thrive or a bit better that cuts down these numbers and work towards that. And as health and safety is shown over a period, you can work towards a great result. And I think that's, that's where we're going. Um, it's a great opportunity for me. Well, we're not even halfway through. This is an on, ongoing um, effort from, from our side, completely away from kicking a ball about or talking about people kicking a ball about. Uh, but it's it's um, not a fashionable conversation. It's a must-have conversation, uh, and one that's not going to go away. And there is responsibility now um, being recognised across industries and instructions. Certainly, uh, is trying to make a, a change, and we're going to try and help them do that. Excellent, and I'm sure you'll achieve the same results as you did on the football field, mate. It's been well, I hope absolute, so. I hope so. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to. To catch up with you, fascinating conversation, lots of takeaways there, listener viewer. 
football fan, and as I said earlier, particularly of a certain vintage, you'll have loved some of the tales about some legends of the game, such as Howard Kendall, Graeme Soonis, Bobby Robson, Walter Smith, uh, but also takeaways um, for businesses, you know, the, the building of culture, the motivation of your team. Um, always thinking about not just those new staff and the new talent that you're identifying, but the people who've been loyal to you in the past of where, as well. Developing a culture of camaraderie, which can make a difference between a good team, which Everton competed in uh, under um, during Trevor's playing time um, in the sort of later 80s. But when they had that camaraderie and that great team spirit, um, winning titles, winning cups, um, winning lots of uh, trophies because that extra camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. that culture gave them uh, probably that extra 10%, which takes a good team to a great team. So hopefully, whether you're listening to this as a football supporter, whether you're listening to this as a business owner who's looking for some takeaways, you'll have got something from this. Final point, in terms of the campaign that Trevor mentioned there through Causeway Technologies on mental health, if you want to know more, visit the downtown website, all the W's downtownandbusiness.com. There's a more detailed interview with Trevor about that particular campaign. And if you're in construction or property in particular, please get in touch. We'd love to get you involved. This has been the Downtown Den, the Downtown Podcast. Frank McKenna and Trevor Stephen will be back with episode two of our new Downtown Den podcast series in the near future. That's it from the latest Downtown Den podcast. Thanks to Trevor Stephen and, of course, to our sponsors, Jane Moore Media. Uh, next up in the den, we have the Managing Director of High Performance Consultancy and 1HR. Also, uh, the person behind the brand Lady Boss HR, that's Victoria Brown. If you're interested in getting involved as a member of Downtown in Business, then please visit our website. That's all the W's downtowninbusiness.com and come and get involved with the fastest growing business organization in the UK. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Hope that you'll tune in again next time when, as I say, we've got Victoria Brown in the den. Don't miss that one. It's a fascinating discussion.